Hi everyone, a brief apology before we begin. This episode was recorded just days before the first episode of the Unbeatable Squirrel Girl podcast, in which I learned for the first time exactly how you pronounce Milana Weintrub's name. Uh, I did get it wrong a couple of times, relying on my inadequate high school pronunciation lessons of Russian. Uh, my apologies to Ms. Weintrub and, uh, Trust me, if you do another horror movie, which I would love to see you do, I won't get it wrong again. Thank you. On with the show. Welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Werewolves Within from 2021. Written by first-time screenwriter Mishna Wolf, presumably no relation to the antagonist of the movie, and directed by Josh Rubin as his second feature after Scare Me, although he's been acting for quite some time, most notably in the College Humor series of web shorts. Now, ostensibly this is based on the 2016 video game Werewolves Within by Red Storm Entertainment, but honestly the adaptation is so loose and the video game itself is based so heavily on the various tabletop games that go by werewolf, mafia, and other variant terms that it's really more accurate to say that the movie is based on mafia. Which means that to really pick up what this film is laying down, we should probably talk mafia. And maybe a little bit of game theory, because there are definitely people using it in Werewolves Within. So what is mafia? It's a game that was started in the psychology department of Moscow State University in 1987 by a man named Dmitry Davidov, who is interested in applying some of his research in a fun and instructive fashion. It rapidly spread due to the simplicity of the basic rules. Anyone who plays Mafia can teach at least a basic version of the game, so it's perfect for jumping from one social circle to another. All you need to grasp is the central concept. One player is evil and spends their rounds either secretly bumping people off or trying to convince everyone else to suspect each other, and the rest are trying to spot the secret villain without any real information beyond their gut intuition about who's lying and who's telling the truth. It feels so unsurprising that this was invented in Soviet Russia. There are as many variants as there are people playing the game, but the predominant ones relate to a werewolves and villagers theme rather than a mafioso and townsfolk one, Possibly because the Mafia don't exactly do their work in private, even if they do have a famous code of silence. Most townsfolk know who's in the Mafia. It's the police who don't. Some versions, including the Werewolves Within video game, have extra roles beyond the werewolf that give different abilities and victory conditions, which complicates the game further and makes it harder for the townsfolk to tell who's who. For example, there are turncoats who are trying to help the werewolves. There are seers who get the ability to eliminate one suspect a night by fiat, etc., etc., etc. 
Now, a lot of those extra wrinkles can make this game very difficult to predict, and this is as good a time as any to mention that we will be going full spoilers in this movie is a whodunit, so stop now if you really want to have that surprise preserved. But the very basic version of Few Werewolves, Many Villagers has been studied extensively by mathematicians specializing in game theory. Game theory is a branch of math that analyzes different strategies in a variety of games from a purely mathematical standpoint to try to determine if there's an ideal way to maximize your chances of winning, not just because mathematicians like beating their friends as much as anyone else, but because it provides an interesting window on the way probability and social strategizing work in the real and much more complicated world. It's a form of mathematical modeling, and it's very useful for developing good models, which can be applied to other things. And interestingly enough, this game is difficult to model even in its simplest form. There is a model for a werewolf, indicating exactly how many players have to be werewolves at the start of the game to be evenly matched, i.e. a 50% chance of winning on both sides. But whenever it's tested in live play, the villagers win more often than the model should indicate, because lying is difficult and stressful and being honest and communicative works better than people think it does. Which I think you'll see is at least a ostensible theme of this movie as we go on. The film stars Sam Richardson as forest ranger Finn Wheeler and Milana Weintraub as postal worker Cecily Moore. Uh, Richardson is one of those actors who's quietly been building up a very nice resume of comedy roles, but he's probably best known at this point for his role on Veep as Richard Splett. And Weintraub's two biggest claims to fame are her recurring role as the helpful, occasionally nonplussed AT&T employee in their commercials, and her almost-happened-part-as-Marvel superhero Doreen Green, a.k.a. Squirrel Girl, in an unsold New Warriors pilot that led to her doing some Squirrel Girl voice work. This feels like one of those movies that fans of both actors will look up back on as a major career stepping stone, to be honest. There's also a large cast of colorful and eccentric, i.e. deeply messed up, townspeople, which for the most part break down into pairs. So George Basil and Sarah Burns, for example, play Marcus and Gwen, a couple who have a lot of self-inflicted woes due to their low intelligence and freewheeling moral compass. Basil comes out of college humor as well, although he's a frequent day player on a number of comedy series, while Burns has been on things like Drunk History and Barry. You'll see a common thread to this film is that most of its actors are comedians first and foremost. Unpleasantly right-wing couple Pete and Trisha Anderton, meanwhile, are played by Michael Chernus and Michaela Watkins. Chernus is an accomplished character actor who's had small roles in things like Men in Black 3 and Spider-Man Homecoming, while Watkins is a member of the legendary comedy troupe The Groundlings in L.A. Think Phil Hartman, P.B. Herman, and Elvira, among many others who's also been on Saturday Night Live, Big Mouth, The Dropout, and Robot Chicken. Their far-left counterparts, gay couple Devin and Joaquin Wolfson, are played by Cheyenne Jackson and Harvey Guillen. And nothing against Jackson, who's been a major part of the American Horror Story TV show with several key roles, but my eyes lit up when I saw that Harvey Guillen was in this. He's been a favorite of mine ever since his role as downtrodden mapmaker Benedict Pickwick on The Magicians, and of course, everybody loves him as Guillermo on What We Do in the Shadows. Unless you haven't seen What We Do in the Shadows, in which case, why not? And while not exactly a couple, it's easy to view Wayne Duvall's Sam Parker and Rebecca Henderson's Dr. Ellis 
as counterparts for reasons that will become increasingly apparent as we dig into the plot. Duval is a longtime character actor who's had guest spots on just about every TV show since 1991, while Henderson is probably best known as Lizzie on Russian Doll, so she's had some practice dying horribly. Um, spoilers. And playing the remaining half of a couple is Catherine Curtin, who is Janine and who was Wanda on Orange is the New Black and Dustin's mom on Stranger Things. Well, Patrick M. Walsh, who's probably better known as a stuntman and stunt coordinator on films like Halloween Kills and the John Wick movies, has a small but pivotal role as her late husband, Dave. Which leaves us with just one single isolated character, fiercely independent survivalist Emerson Flint, played by Glenn Fleshler. Fleshler is another regular guest actor and day player, probably best recognized from his role on the series Billions, and from Barry, where he plays Goran Pazar. It's interesting to me just how many directors wisely choose character actors to give extra value to productions that might not otherwise have much to showcase. No real spoilers here, but this is an effects-like production. You're not going to see any big Rick Baker-style werewolf set pieces in this film. Speaking of lo-fi production values, the film opens up with a title card and a quote that slowly unveils itself one phrase at a time to the sound of whistling wind and ominous music. Listening is where love begins. Listening to ourselves. And then our neighbors. Okay, there's no voiceover to this, but that's the voice you imagine when you hear that music. And with a final crash of drums, the name Mr. Rogers appears beneath it. Now, part of me wants to believe that no one will ever miss the intent of this very obvious joke, but it's been almost 20 years since Fred Rogers passed away, and a little over 20 since he stopped doing Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And since this isn't the last time Mr. Rogers will be referenced, it's worth a very quick detour into why he's important to this movie. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was a children's show that ran from 1968 to 2001 on PBS and starred a Presbyterian minister named Fred Rogers as its host. He spent most of his time talking directly to the camera as if he could see the kids watching, and a lot of his conversation was simple, secular discussions of morality pitched at a child-friendly level. His main tenets were compassion and empathy, the idea of always trying to look at things from other people's point of view and help them wherever possible, and he practiced what he preached for an entire lifetime of being kind and generous with his time and energy. To a lot of people, he was an oasis of calm and comfort in a turbulent life, and pretty much anyone who is little in those 30-odd years has fond memories of watching his show. It's kind of a funny, not funny running gag among Gen Xers that the reason our society has gone so far off the rails has a lot to do with the lack of a Mr. Rogers these days. After the card comes down, we then pan over the empty and cold forests of Beaverfield as an odd little novelty song from the 50s played. It's called Nya Nya Nya, The Phantom Strikes Again. It's about a sneaky troublemaker, sung by Howard Marin, who constantly gets away with playing pranks and mischief, and it's kind of perfect for this particular movie's emphasis on paranoia and mistrust. It sets the tone very well. We then pan down to what we will discover to be Dave, alone in the woods near his house, which is also the local hotel, and given away by the sound of his phone's wolf-whistling ringtone. He's dragged off into the forest with a scream, again, so lo-fi in the production values they did not need to shoot a single special effect for this. 
And then we cut to 29.5 days later, where Finn Wheeler is also screaming, although in his case, it's while he's driving at the direction of a self-help tape that's supposed to help make him more assertive. It also directs him to chant the word balls over and over, and honestly, this feels like something that could have been spun off into its own entirely unrelated comedy sketch. Now, someone on IMDb said the timing was inaccurate because the full moon doesn't synchronize exactly with the calendar, but in fact, a lunar cycle is 29.5 days, according to Google, so this is why we don't place our full stock in the majesty and wonder that is IMDb trivia. As Finn drives, he calls his estranged girlfriend and leaves her a message asking to talk to her that makes it very clear that his lack of assertiveness has been a pretty major problem in their relationship. This was a little concerning to me on my first watch, because one of the basic tenets of Screenwriting 101 is that if you introduce a character flaw in the beginning, you're doing it so the protagonist can have a big moment at the end where they overcome it to demonstrate their growth as a person. If someone is scared of a spider in the very first scene, they're going to end the movie by killing a giant spider, that kind of thing. So to see them introducing very early on the notion of, look, this guy lets his girlfriend push him around as a character flaw, feels like a setup for someone who's going to overcome his wimpiness and become an alpha male at the end. Most of the second act really kind of lulled me into a sense of security about that, and I will say that, spoilers aside, it's a little bit more complicated than that at the end, but I think it's safe to say that the film does not quite escape the orbit of that concept, and it's very much to its detriment. Oh, and speaking of balls, as he's driving by, he sees the local gas company, Midland Gas, has a display with an eternal flame jetting out of a very phallic tower, flanked on either side by a pair of fuel tanks that are more than a little suggestive. Again, this will be important later. One thing I will say about this movie is it does a very good job of setting up all of its plot points nice and early and keeping them first and foremost centered in our minds so that we know what we can look forward to. Finn pulls up to the Beaverfield Inn, which is apparently where he's staying until he finds a new permanent place to live. He's the new forest ranger in Beaverfield, which turns out not to be a very good post for someone who lacks assertiveness because local gas magnate Sam Parker is pushing everyone in town, specifically Janine Sherman in this scene, she's the owner of the Beaverfield Inn, to sell him their land so he can build a natural gas pipeline, one that will pass uncomfortably close to the National Forest. But it has to be unanimous, no holdouts, because a pipeline that goes halfway through town doesn't do anyone much good, so nobody gets the money unless everyone agrees to sell. Although at several points they do say majority instead of unanimous, which makes no sense because Parker already has a majority. I think this may just be a case of characters not knowing what words mean. The upshot is that everyone is at everyone else's throats over a situation that directly impacts Finn's new job. After a little exchange that establishes this issue, as well as the presence of an environmentalist on the second floor who's there specifically to stop the pipeline, and a coming blizzard set to hit the town that evening, Janine helps Finn up to his room to get settled in. Just as he's about to close the door, local mail carrier Cecily, who also lives at the inn, shows up with some mail for him, and a little correction when he calls her a mailman, which immediately endeared her to me. I don't get to see many movies in this genre where someone says gender is a construct, and it was nice. I'm mentioning ways that Cecily makes such a great protagonist now because I'm laying the groundwork for future conversation. Hint, hint. 
The mail turns out to be an illegal poaching complaint laid by Dr. Ellis, the environmentalist on the second floor, against town person Emerson Flint, and Cecily decides to take him out that way while she goes on her daily route. Incidentally, they never show the post office logo in super close-up because the USPS refused to cooperate with the production. I don't think it's especially noticeable, but if you look for it, you can see it. Cecily also spends most of her time dishing hot goss on the town's inhabitants. Janine is running the hotel with Cecily's occasional help because her husband ran off, supposedly to Belize, with another woman. Devin and Joaquim are a gay couple who moved out to Beaverfield to live in the peace and calm of nature after Devin's tech startup made him a millionaire. Gwen and Marcus are an on-again, off-again couple who run the local auto repair shop and share a volatile temperament. Gwen still thinks that Cecily is refusing to deliver a shipment of parts for the town snowplow and poor decision-making skills. Pete and Trish are a pair of, you know, they never actually say it, but Trump supporter is the perfect label for them. Trish asks Finn if he celebrates Kwanzaa instead of Christmas, and Pete tries to get handsy with Cecily and apparently had an affair with Gwen at some point. They have a little dog named Chachi who is adorable and expendable, and I really did wonder if this was someone who heard the don't kill dogs, don't bury your gays discourse around film and said, oh yeah, hold my beer. Finn responds to all this with determined politeness, friendliness, and fun facts about snowshoeing. Good for him. Again, I feel like the film wants me to see Finn's mellow temperament as a character flaw, when I really can't help wondering if it's a sign that he was abused as a child and has trouble asserting himself because that was so often met with punishment in his formative years. Sorry, you can probably already tell I'm a little conflicted about this movie. I don't necessarily know what it's trying to say, and I don't think it does either. And that's going to be a real big problem when we get into the third act, and even more of a problem when we get into the fourth act. Uh, fourth acts are when a movie seems to be at an ending and then delivers one final twist shock to give you that one last big scare, like Alien, where she gets into the shuttle and, oh shit, the alien is in there with her. That's a fourth act. And last but not least, the town includes Emerson Flint, who lives a bit further off the beaten track. Cecily hands off her package for him to Finn, asking him to drop it off as a favor since she's got other things to do. Finn agrees, because people please her and then gets a call from his girlfriend that cuts in and out so badly that he's completely distracted from multiple large signs saying that trespassers will be shot on sight. This is a little bit difficult to believe, to be honest, given their sheer size and profusion, but we'll go with it. That means he's caught off guard when Emerson, a giant of a man dressed in the furs of animals he's killed and skinned, greets him with a gun pointed at him, and the subsequent conversation is brief and perfunctory at best, and ends with a ten count of leave or be shot. It's very clear that they are contrasting this he-man alpha male type to Finn's mellow, people-pleasing politesse, and I'm not really comfortable with any part of that, even though I think it thinks it's trying to subvert that in the ending, but again, we'll get to that. It all leaves Finn a little rattled, and Cecily offers to take him over to the Wolfson's private bar, the Axe Den, to get him some food and drink. Apparently they let her hang out there as a favor because she's such a devoted mail carrier, which makes no sense in light of what we find out later about the time frame between Dave's deaths and Cecily's arrival, but hey, Cecily is a really fucking unreliable narrator here. Finn puts on Ace of Bases' The Sign on the soundtrack. The hit of nostalgia I felt was 
palpable. And Cecily comes out from behind the bar wearing a revealing tank top and dancing to the song in a moment that was literally the only clip I could find of this movie on YouTube apart from the trailers. I guess I now know where the priorities of the fanbase lie. They share a kombucha, and Finn confesses that he got this posting as a punishment for fishing with some friends at a place called Grout Pond without a permit, and that he and his girlfriend aren't so much estranged as broken up in all the ways that matter, even though they haven't made it official. He works out his frustrations by learning how to throw axes from Sicily, who turns out to be an expert axe thrower, because the name The Accident is not a metaphor. They've got a full axe-throwing station there. Which does not make sense with anything we see of the Wolfsons, but, you know, maybe they've got it for friends. And they have an almost romantic moment bonding over the book Walden that Finn screws up by taking a call from his ex. Stung, Cecily storms off. And I feel like this is a scene that would work with a different ending, but doesn't work at all once we find out that, and I apologize, but there's no real way to talk about this scene properly without tearing off the band-aid here, Cecily is a werewolf who's seducing Finn in order to lure him off guard so she can kill him later, and all the stuff about Walden and Kombucha and dancing to Ace of Base are a sort of kayfabe she's putting on to appear like the kind of sexy cute girl with tons of charming quirks and no interior life that guys fall for. What Nathan Rabin once called the manic pixie dream girl, although he's since disavowed the term. And the problem with that is that Cecily very clearly has an interior life. She's avoiding Pete, even though he's Obviously the kind of guy who thinks with his dick and would cheerfully walk into an industrial meat grinder if he thought there was a naked woman inside. If she wants to kill him, she could just flirt with him, and that would get it done. She's already reading Walden when Finn gets to the hotel, so unless she's psychic, that can't be an act. She walks out and tells Finn to grow a pair when he starts talking to his ex midway through their kiss, which is a great damn thing to do and shows that she respects herself and puts herself first, but is kind of a bad tactic for a murderous grifter who's supposedly putting on an act for her target. And incidentally, if she is the werewolf, she has multiple opportunities to kill him and no reason not to at several points in this movie. Even the male person line is the sign of someone who draws firm boundaries, which is fine for a protagonist, but less fine if she's trying to ingratiate herself to everyone in town. The character Cicely is pretending to be, if this is a pretense, would stomp away just a little bit, sulk adorably for a few minutes while Finn apologized, and then give him an inspirational speech about needing to care more about himself and less about what others think about him. And to be exceedingly blunt, I'd prefer a movie about the real Cecily than the fake Cecily who's just secretly a werewolf, because the real Cecily is an interesting character. She could be the protagonist of this movie. Anyway, more on this later. For now, we jump ahead to Nightfall and the blizzard rolling in. Trish sends her dog out through the doggy door on a retractable leash rather than get bundled up, but she hears the sound of the dog very briefly squealing before her leash retracts, no dog and no collar attached. As always, it's just not good to be a pooch in a horror movie, even if thankfully we don't see any gore. For that matter, I don't think there's ever a point where Cecily confesses to killing the dog. Maybe Chachi made a break for it and joined a pack of feral animals sprinting north toward the Canadian border. The next morning, Trish comes to the inn and makes a very dramatic scene of her grief and anguish. 
The power is out due to the blizzard, as are the cell phone lines and the internet, and the town's only snowplow is out of commission thanks to the missing parts. And the road has been washed out by an avalanche. Finn goes out to try to restore the generators and finds that each and every one has been destroyed by some sort of massive, razor-sharp shredding implement within human power. So, you know, there's a thing. Incidentally, they do try to claim at several points that someone did it with a knife, and there's some suspicion about whose knife it is and where they find the knife, but it's really clearly not a knife. It's such a bad red herring, I don't even know why they tried. Oh, and Finn also finds the corpse of Janine's husband, Dave, who's been hidden in the crawl space under the hotel for the last 30 or so days. Finn informs everyone of the situation, and Dr. Ellis performs an informal autopsy and determines that the body was attacked by a wolf. She takes some hair samples for examination in her field lab upstairs, and I don't exactly know what Rebecca Henderson was aiming at in these scenes, but she plays the role as oddly twitchy and suspicious in a way that's never really explained. Not just twitchy and suspicious to other people, but as soon as she's alone, she starts getting shifty looks on her face and doing secret things. And they don't ever explain what that's about. I, I don't mind twitchy and suspicious in principle. This isn't Everyone's a Suspect movie. But if you're going to play twitchy and suspicious and you're not the killer, then there should be a scene that explains what your deal is, and she does not get one. Finn comes up with the idea to ask Emerson Flint, who's an experienced, if potentially law-breaking trapper, for assistance in dealing with the wolf, and asks Cecily to come with him for moral support. She's reluctant, both because of the romantic tension between her and Finn, and because of the potential for being killed, and even after Finn makes a sincere apology, she's still not ready to forgive it. Again, that's protagonist material right there, damn it. Oh, and Finn takes the opportunity to mention how great snowshoes would be right about now, and our rule of three sense begins tingling. Real quick, for those who don't know, the rule of three is a screenwriting concept that says you need to do something at least three times to make a joke out of it, because the first time establishes it, the second time reinforces it, and the third time subverts it. You can do more than three, but you can't do less because the audience then doesn't have an expectation for you to subvert. Back at the hotel, the Wolfsons and Janine are once again arguing with Gwen, Marcus, Parker, and the Andertons about the pipeline. Trish points out that Janine and Dave argued about the pipeline before he disappeared, and she was apparently the source of the Belize story. She's very clearly fishing for a reason to stir up sentiment against Janine, which is probably the most werewolf-the-game element of this whole plot. Dr. Ellis is doing a DNA analysis on the wolf hair she found, and coming up with some strange anomalous results. And back at Emerson's cabin, Finn appeals to his good nature by evoking Mr. Rogers in the spirit of neighborliness, only to discover that Flint hasn't even heard of him, much less seen an episode. They try to jog his memory, but then Cicely finds Chachi's collar on the fireplace mantle, and they decide that maybe it's not a productive area of discussion after all, because he's clearly the killer. They return to the hotel and inform the others, leading to more panic and confusion. The panic and confusion is probably the funniest part of the film. It feels like everyone was given their character and told to improvise, and they do it in a lot of very amusing ways. This section of the film is genuinely a lot of fun because everyone is so colorful and everyone is still alive and there's just a lot of very clever and cute interactions. 
That night, with the power still out and Emerson presumably on the loose, they all decide to stay at the hotel for the evening, and we learn for the first time that Trish, Pete, Marcus, Janine, and Parker are all packing guns. Firearms and paranoia are a perfect combination for a movie like this, but I feel like they need to stick or be stuck to the hotel for more of the story to really get the proper effect. This is really more of an interlude of tension and stress than a movie of tension and stress. Even comedic tension and comedic stress. There's just this very short second act period where they're all stuck at the hotel together and then it just sort of ends, and that's a shame because it's the best part. That night, Pete is dragged out of his bed by some kind of a wild animal that bites his hand in half. Gwen overhears the noise, grabs Marcus's gun, and shoots Pete in the commotion. He survives the attack. For now. Dr. Ellis finds another hair on the body, and combined with the DNA results she received, she's finally convinced that the predator is both human and wolf simultaneously. A lycanthrope. She locks herself in her room, unable to trust any of the others, and shoots at them when they try to break in. Through the door. She is also packing heat, but she wasn't downstairs in the earlier scene, so we didn't know that. Parker breaks into Ellis's room through the connecting door into the adjoining suite, and the others hear the sound of gunfire. Parker comes out and says to the others that Ellis killed herself, but it's not a particularly convincing story, especially because he has everything to gain from the death of an environmentalist who is there to stop his pipeline. On the other hand, the subsequent conversation about werewolves reveals that he has a surprising amount of information about lycanthrope lore. In fact, everyone knows a few werewolf myths, including Joaquin, who mentions that in his homeland of Argentina, the seventh-born child is always killed as a precaution against lycanthropy. This is kind of a racist trope here. I, this was not something I was comfortable with. Um, and it also clearly worries Cecily, who's mentioned earlier that she has six older siblings. I just really don't like the, in foreign countries, people are still superstitious and believe these superstitious things. Not like us here in America. It's, it's kind of awkward, especially because this whole sequence has things like bringing up of the Wendigo and drawing up all sorts of other very important beliefs of other cultures that are here reduced to the level of, oh my gosh, you won't believe what these people think. As the conversation proceeds, eventually guns are drawn, and it looks like the whole thing might erupt into a massive shootout until Finn manages to calm down the situation and convince everyone to lock away their guns until further notice. Incidentally, watching George Basil's reckless disregard for firearm safety in this movie is a treat for fans of physical comedy. He uses it as a pointer so many times, and it's always funny. Gwen then suggests that they smoke out the werewolf through good old-fashioned deductive reasoning, which, as you might imagine, degenerates into them sitting in a circle and wildly accusing each other and airing out their petty grievances. If you've ever seen the 2016 game, this is practically straight out of the gameplay, albeit transplanted into the modern era from the game's medieval setting. This one scene. That's pretty much the game. Finn once again tries to calm the situation with another inspirational Mr. Rogers-style speech, but everyone's fed up and stressed out. They decide to go back to their separate homes, leaving just Finn, Cecily, and Janine at the inn with only Finn's pepper spray to protect them, which is the cue for the blood-soaked third act to begin. And I'll admit, it's a heck of a string of firecrackers when it happens. It starts when we find out that Parker didn't just come to Beaverfield to get his pipeline. He's there to hunt werewolves. 
He's been tracking a mysterious predatory animal up and down the state, and the locations of the previous murders are suspiciously coincident with Finn's previous visits to the locations in Walden, which are also, as we found out earlier, the locations of Cecily's visits as well, since they share an interest in the book, but the film is using some very clever direction here to make Finley seem like the primary suspect. Lots of ominous music, lots of really well-chosen camera angles, lots of sinister silences. You're supposed to start thinking, wait, what if Finn is not what he appears to be? Also, I'm presuming that Cecily doesn't just kill Janine and Finn here because she's afraid of the pepper spray? Werewolves are not as scary as they could be in this movie, is all I'm saying. Trish ambushes... Devin and Joaquim on the way home, and uses a maple tap to exsanguinate Devin's throat in order to ensure she gets her pipeline payout. Parker breaks into the inn with night vision goggles and a crossbow with a flashlight mounted on it, which would make the night vision goggles useless, but let's not quibble over details, to hunt his werewolf. Apparently he didn't know it was an actual werewolf until Dr. Ellis said it, but he knew it was some kind of big game that he was hoping to kill? Sure, fine, why not? Finn and Cecily hide in the crawlspace to get away from him, and are joined by Joaquim, who got separated from his husband in the woods. They decide to go looking for Devin at Trisha's house rather than hang around waiting to get crossbowed. They also completely forget about Janine. They also make a pretty big leap in thinking that Devin went to Trisha's house. But again, we're in the final act. Things are moving very quickly. They're kind of hoping you don't notice these little papered-over bits of plot holes. When they get there, they find Marcus, who's robbing the place using an improvised Freddy Krueger glove made of duct tape and knives that he taped directly to his hand to leave slash marks that look like a werewolf attack. Again, George Basil is so funny in this. He is so out of this world eccentric. It's great. He runs out of the house to escape and is accidentally run over by Gwen, who's then shot by Trish in revenge for sleeping with Pete. Trish goes after the others, but she's distracted by the discovery that Pete has finally succumbed to his injuries and died, and when Joaquin finds out that she killed Devin, he hits her across the throat with a fireplace poker and she falls headfirst into the fireplace, which has a roaring fire going. Finn suggests snowshoeing off the mountain. Okay, so it's the rule of four now. But he accidentally mentions that Cecily is the seventh born in her family, and Joaquin panics in a scene that's honestly kind of racist and uncomfortable. He puts Trish's gun to Cecily's head, but Parker shows up and shoots Joaquin. But he was aiming at Finn, who takes cover behind Gwen's truck. Parker takes Cecily hostage to draw Finn out, and Finn boldly confronts him with his belief that there never was a werewolf at all. It was paranoia and mistrust that turned everyone against each other, and none of the murders were supernatural. They fight, and Finn gets stabbed in the side before Joaquin pops up one last time to shoot Parker's phallic propane tanks right while he's standing next to them, detonating the whole thing and killing Parker. But somehow not Cecily or Finn, who are maybe five feet further away? It's a bit of a struggle to swallow. Again, Things are moving very quickly here. They're kind of relying on that to keep you from thinking too much about the movie. The power comes back on, and Cecily brings Finn into the accident to treat his wounds. Because apparently, even though she's a werewolf and he's a badly injured human and they're the last two people in the area, she needs to bring him inside and do a dramatic fourth-act reveal of her lycanthropic nature instead of just biting out his throat right then and there. 
Again, you may notice that I'm a little bit salty about certain elements of this film that don't hold up on a rewatch. It's very obvious when you go through it the second time that Cecily's plan really doesn't make any sense at all, but the screenwriters wanted that big twist moment so bad that they fudged a lot of stuff to get there. And sure enough, when Cecily goes to get the first aid kit, Finn is conveniently uninjured enough to go looking around and discovers Dave's phone and postal worker's badge. Dave's phone is ringing for some reason? Who is trying to get a hold of him at this point in the movie? Along with a bunch of undelivered packages in the women's restroom. He also finds several newspaper clippings of the killings, and while I get that it's supposed to be funny that Cecily hid the evidence of her murders that apparently followed the trail of Walden in the women's room of a gay bar, why does she even keep newspaper clippings of her murders, specifically for this scene? He goes out and confronts Cecily, who says the line that genuinely irks me. Werewolves are real. Women who read Walden while drinking kombucha and getting turned on by your Yellowstone stories? They're a fantasy. Also, I don't remember any Yellowstone stories. I think that may be a reference to a deleted scene. Because while I do get that the filmmakers think they're skewering the stereotype of women in romantic comedies who are cute and quirky and given just enough personality to be attractive to men, I think that what they wound up doing was sending a misogynistic message that women are liars who can't be trusted because they fake interest in the things men like to get what they really want, and they're all secretly devious and scheming. It's deeply uncomfortable, especially because Cecily hasn't just been a vessel for Finn's fantasies. She's been someone who's drawn her own boundaries, had her own opinions, and has been very willing to tell Finn to fuck off and grow a pair when he wasn't treating her with respect. She explains that she killed Dave to get his postal worker position. Apparently she is a genuine postal worker, just not the one for Beaverfield until the posting opened up, and killed Chachi to get his collar so she could plant it on Emerson's mantle. Her plan all along was to get everyone to kill each other as the winter set in, then let their bodies freeze and eat them over the next several months, and, um, step three, profit. I'm really not clear on how tricking them into killing each other disguises the very real evidence of wolf bites on their corpses, or how she's going to explain things when two weeks from now someone comes investigating the sudden silence of a forest ranger and a postal worker and a dot-com millionaire and finds her the only survivor of a massacre. But again, this whole story was just a vehicle to get to the final twist, and I don't think they were expecting anyone to re-examine it, which is kind of a disappointment. Movies should hold up to multiple watches. Finn responds by giving a big, angry speech about how everyone's down on nice guys, but really being a nice guy is great and awesome, and it's women like her who need to change, not him, and I think they were going for some idea of being a good person isn't something you should dump on and Finn's okay the way he is, but again, what they came up with feels so uncomfortably similar to that insult propaganda letter that floats around Facebook about how someday you, the woman who only likes bad boys, will someday regret losing him, the nice guy who is nice, and he's such a great catch, and he was legitimately trying to be your friend, but you wouldn't have sex to him, and basically what I'm saying is the movie lost me pretty damn hard here. Cecily responds by turning into a low-budget werewolf. 
I, I'm not going to harp on the, the special effects because I really don't think you need to be high budget to be good and fun, but they show most of it at, at a long distance and kind of in a soft focus. And when she does pop up with the werewolf makeup on, it is, it is decidedly cheap looking werewolf makeup. But just as she's about to attack, Emerson shows up and hits her with a shovel because he apparently googled Mr. Rogers or something, because now he's like, I'm doing what Mr. Rogers would do. It's not really explained. The two fight, but she quickly gets the upper hand and knocks him out. He does give Finn enough time to hide, though, and apparently he's bled over so much of the premises that she can't find him by scent. Don't worry, his very serious wound will not impede him at all at any point during the remainder of this movie. While she's distracted in her search, Finn pops up from behind the rack of throwing axes and flings several at her. But he's a lousy shot, hitting the jukebox and several of the wall decorations, including a pair of snowshoes, but not Cecily. She jumps at him and they struggle, and wouldn't you know it, the snowshoes have broken off at a sharpened point and he stabs her right through the neck with one of them. Because they're very useful! Emerson turns out to be alive as well, and the two of them help each other up and decide to go see if Janine's alive to make them something to eat. They don't notice Cecily getting up behind them, which is a forgivable thing in a movie like this, but they also somehow don't notice Janine directly in front of them with a crossbow, which is much less so. Janine shoots Cecily and tells them to make their own damn food, which is a note of ostentatious feminism that feels entirely like an unearned victory lap after the fake geek girl reveal and the angry nice guy who is nice speech earlier. And we cut to credits. And will I hang on to this movie? I don't think so. I enjoyed it a lot more on the first viewing, when the wackiness of the colorful townspeople stood out and I didn't know that the real message was women are schemers and deceivers who break the hearts of nice guys and you can't trust them. And now that I know that's where it all leads, I can't really see myself popping it in again. It's kind of a shame because I do think there was a good movie in here struggling to get out, but that fourth act just feels mean. And it kills the spirit of anarchic fun that made the rest of the film so enjoyable to watch. So, yeah, it's probably back to the store with this one. And if you want to talk about internet nice guys, game theory, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, it's been a little while since I've done a proper series run for a horror franchise, mainly because I do kind of get my movies potluck and you can't always find every installment. But I think I've got my ducks in a row, and that means it's time to tackle one of the cultiest of cult classics, the frequently bizarre but always unforgettable Phantasm. See you then.